Chapter Four of *The Innocence Abroad* by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. We plowed along bravely for a week or more, and without any conflict of jurisdiction among the captains worth mentioning. The passengers soon learned to accommodate themselves to their new circumstances, and life in the ship became nearly as systematically monotonous as the routine of a barrack. I do not mean that it was dull, for it was not entirely so by any means, but there was a good deal of sameness about it, as is always the fashion at sea. The passengers shortly began to pick up sailor terms, a sign that they were beginning to feel at home. Half-past six was no longer half-past six to these pilgrims from New England, the South, and the Mississippi Valley. It was seven bells. Eight, twelve, and four o'clock were eight bells. The captain did not take the longitude at nine o'clock, but at two bells. They spoke glibly of the after-cabin, the forward-cabin, port and starboard, and the forecastle. At seven bells the first gong rang. At eight there was breakfast, for such as there were not too seasick to eat it. After that all the well people walked arm in arm up and down the long promenade deck, enjoying the fine summer mornings, and the seasick ones crawled out and propped themselves up in the lee of the paddle-boxes, and ate their dismal tea and toast, and looked wretched. From eleven o'clock until luncheon, and from luncheon until dinner at six in the evening, the employments and amusements were various. Some reading was done, and much smoking and sewing, though not by the same parties. There were the monsters of the deep to be looked after and wondered at. Strange ships had to be scrutinized through opera glasses, and sage decisions arrived at concerning them. And more than that, everybody took a personal interest in seeing that the flag was run up and politely dipped three times in response to the salutes of those strangers. In the smoking-room there were always parties of gentlemen playing euchre, draughts, and dominoes, especially dominoes, that delightfully harmless game. And down on the main deck, forward, or forward of the chicken coops and the cattle, we had what was called horse billiards. Horse billiards is a fine game. It affords good active exercise, hilarity, and consuming excitement. It is a mixture of hopscotch and shuffleboard played with a crutch. A large hopscotch diagram is marked out on the deck with chalk, and each compartment numbered. You stand off three or four steps, with some broad wooden discs before you on the deck, and these you send forward with a vigorous thrust of the long crutch. If a disc stops on a chalk line, it does not count anything. If it stops in a division, number seven, it counts seven. In five, it counts five, and so on. The game is one hundred, and four can play at a time. That game would be very simple, played on a stationary floor, but with us, to play it well required science. We had to allow for the reeling of the ship to the right or the left. Very often one made calculations, 
for a heel to the right, and the ship did not go that way. The consequence was that the disc missed the whole hopscotch plan a yard or two, and then there was a humiliation on one side and laughter on the other. When it rained, the passengers had to stay in the house, of course, or at least the cabins, and amuse themselves with games, reading, looking out of the windows with the very familiar billows, and talking gossip. By seven o'clock in the evening, dinner was about over, an hour's promenade on the upper deck followed. Then the gong sounded, and a large majority of the party repaired to the after cabin, or upper, a handsome saloon fifty or sixty feet long, for prayers. The unregenerated called this saloon the synagogue. The devotions consisted only of two hymns from the Plymouth collection and a short prayer, and seldom occupied more than fifteen minutes. The hymns were accompanied by parlor organ music when the sea was smooth enough to allow a performer to sit at the instrument without being lashed to his chair. After prayers, the synagogue shortly took the semblance of a writing school. The like of that picture was never seen in a ship before. Behind the long dining tables on either side of the saloon, and scattered from one end to the other of the latter, some twenty or thirty gentlemen and ladies sat them down under the swaying lamps, and for two or three hours wrote diligently in their journals. Alas, that journal so voluminously begun should come to so lame and impotent a conclusion as most of them did. I doubt if there was a single pilgrim of all that host but can show a hundred fair pages of journal concerning the first twenty days voyaging in the Quaker City. And I am morally certain that not ten of the party can show twenty pages of journal from the succeeding twenty thousand miles of voyaging. At certain periods it becomes the dearest ambition of a man to keep a faithful record of his performances in a book, and he dashes at this work with an enthusiasm that imposes on him the notion that keeping a journal is the veriest pastime in the world and the pleasantest. But if he only lives twenty-one days, he will find out that only those rare natures that are made up of pluck, endurance, devotion to duty for duty's sake, and invincible determination may hope to venture upon so tremendous an enterprise as the keeping of a journal, and not sustain a shameful defeat. One of our favorite youths, Jack, a splendid young fellow with a head full of good sense and a pair of legs that were a wonder to look upon in the way of length and straightness and slimness, used to report progress every morning in the most glowing and spirited way, and say, Oh, I'm coming along bully. He was a little given to slang in his happier moods. I wrote ten pages of my journal last night, and you know I wrote nine the night before, and twelve the night before that. Why, it's only fun. What did you find to put in it, Jack? Oh, everything, latitude and longitude, noon every day, and how many miles we made last twenty-four hours, and all the domino games I beat, and horse billiards, and whales, and sharks, and porpoises, 
and the text of the sermon Sundays, because that'll tell at home, you know, and the ships we saluted, and what nation they were, and which way the wind was, and whether it was a heavy sea, and what sail we carried, though we don't ever carry any, principally going against the head wind always. Wonder what is the reason of that, and how many lies Moult has told. Oh, everything, I've got everything down. My father told me to keep that journal. Father wouldn't take a thousand dollars for it when I get it done. No, Jack, it'll be worth more than a thousand dollars when you get it done. Do you? No, but do you think it will, though? Yes, it'll be worth at least as much as a thousand dollars when you get it done. Maybe more. Well, I about think so myself, and it ain't no slouch of a journal. But it shortly came to a most lamentable slouch of a journal. One night in Paris, after a hard day's toiling and sightseeing, I said, Now I'll go and stroll around the cafes a while, Jack, and give you a chance to write up your journal, old fellow. His countenance lost its fire, he said. Well, no, you needn't mind. I, I think I won't run that journal any more. It is awful tedious. Do you know, I reckon... I'm as much as 4,000 pages behindhand. I haven't got any France in it at all. First I thought I'd leave France out and start fresh, but that wouldn't do, would it? The governor would say, Hello here. Didn't see anything in France. That cat wouldn't fight, you know. First I thought I'd copy France out of a guidebook like old Badger in the forward cabin, who's writing a book. But there's more than three hundred pages of it. Oh, I don't think a journal's any use, do you? They're only a bother, ain't they? Yes, a journal that is incomplete isn't of much use, but a journal properly kept is worth a thousand dollars when you get it done. A thousand? Well, I should think so. I wouldn't finish it for a million. Well, his experience was only the experience of the majority of that industrious night school in the cabin. If you wish to inflict a heartless and malignant punishment upon a young person, pledge him to keep a journal a year. A good many expedients were resorted to to keep the excursionist amused and satisfied. A club was formed of all the passengers which met in a writing school after prayers and read aloud about the countries we were approaching and discussed the information so obtained. Several times the photographer of the expedition brought out his transparent pictures and gave us a handsome magic lantern exhibition. His views were nearly all of foreign scenes, but there were one or two home pictures among them. He advertised that he would open his performance in the after-cabin at two bells, 9 p.m., and show the passengers where they shall eventually arrive, which was all very well, but in a funny accident the first picture that flamed out upon the canvas was a view of Greenwood Cemetery. On several starlight nights we danced on the upper deck under the awnings and made something of a ballroom display of brilliancy by hanging a number of ship's lanterns to the stanchions. Our music consisted of a well-mixed strains of a melodeon, 
which was a little asthmatic and apt to catch its breath where it ought to come out strong, a clarinet which was a little unreliable on the high keys and rather melancholy on the low ones, a disreputable accordion that had a leak somewhere and breathed louder than it squawked, a more elegant term does not occur to me just now. However, the dancing was infinitely worse than the music. When the ship rolled to starboard, the whole platoon of dancers came charging down to starboard with it, and brought up in mess at the rail. And when it rolled to port, they went floundering down to the port with the same unanimity of sentiment. Walter spun around precariously for a matter of fifteen seconds, and then went scurrying down the rail as if they meant to go overboard. The Virginia reel, as performed on board the Quaker City, had more genuine reel about it than any reel I ever saw before, and was as full of interest to the spectator as it was full of desperate chances and hair-breadth escapes to the participant. We gave up dancing, finally. Well, we celebrated a lady's birthday anniversary with toasts, speeches, a poem, and so forth. We also had a mock trial. No ship ever went to sea that hadn't had a mock trial on board. The purser was accused of stealing an overcoat from stateroom number 10. A judge was appointed, also clerks, a crier of the court, constables, sheriffs, counsel for the state and for the defendant. Witnesses were subpoenaed, and a jury impaneled after much challenging. The witnesses were stupid and unreliable and contradictory, as witnesses always are. The counsel was eloquent, argumentative, and vindictively abusive of each other, as was characteristic and proper. The case was at last submitted and duly finished by the judge with an absurd decision and a ridiculous sentence. The acting of charades was tried, on several evenings, by the young gentlemen and ladies in the cabins, and proved the most distinguished success of all the amusement experiments. An attempt was made to organize a debating club, but it was a failure. There was no oratorical talent in the ship. We all enjoyed ourselves, I think I can safely say that, but it was in a rather quiet way. We very, very seldom played the piano. We played the flute and the clarinet together, and made good music, too, what there was of it. But we always played the same old tune, and it was a very pretty tune. How well I remember it. I wonder when I shall ever get rid of it. We never played either the melodeon or the organ except at devotions. But I'm too fast. Young Albert did know part of a tune of something about, oh, something or rather how sweet it is to know that he's his what's-his-name. I do not remember the exact title of it, but it was very plaintive and full of sentiment. Albert played that pretty much all the time, unless we contracted with him to restrain himself. But nobody ever sang by moonlight on the upper deck and the congregational singing at church and prayers was not of a superior order of architecture. I put up with it as long as I could, and then joined in and tried to improve it, but this encouraged young George to join in, too, and that made a failure of it, because George's voice was just turning, 
and when he was singing a dismal sort of bass that was apt to fly off the handle and startle everybody with a most discordant cackle in the upper notes george didn't know the tunes either which was also a drawback to his performances i said come now george don't improvise it looks too egotistical it will provoke remark just stick to coronation like the others it is a good tune you can't improve it any just offhand in this way well i'm not trying to improve it i'm singing like the others just as it is in the notes and he honestly thought he was too and so he had no one to blame but himself when his voice caught on the center occasionally and gave him the lockjaw there were those among the unregenerated who attributed the unceasing headwinds to our distressing choir music there were those who said openly that it was taking chances enough to have such ghastly music going on even when it was at its best and that to exaggerate the crime by letting george help was simply flying in the face of providence these said that the choir would keep up their lacerating attempts at melody until they'd bring down a storm some day that would sink the ship there were even grumblers at the prayers the executive officer said the pilgrims had no charity there they are down there every night at eight bells praying for fair winds when they know as well as i do that this is the only ship going east this time of year but there's a thousand coming west what's a fair wind for us is a head wind to them the almighty's blowing a fair wind for a thousand vessels and this tribe wants them to turn it clear around so as to accommodate one and she is steamship at that it ain't good sense it ain't good reason it ain't good christianity it ain't common charity avast with such nonsense end of chapter four recording by b scott holmes b scott holmes dot com